in relationships, your mindset is contagious. Whatever your mindset is as an individual that you use to approach your relationship, your partner is likely to mirror that back to you. So if your mindset is, hey, this isn't fair, I resent you for reason X, Y, and Z, you can bet that your partner is going to feel resentment and they're going to get locked in this fairness and scorekeeping and all of that. So if we can shift our mindset to something more like 80-80 and what I'm calling radical generosity, all of a sudden that too is contagious. And that's what really gets this idea off the ground is that you don't actually need your partner to do this with you. If you just shift your mindset, you will likely find that your partner starts to shift their mindset as well. And it creates what I think of as a kind of upward spiral in relationships. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dr. Nate Klemp, founding partner of Mindful and co-author of the newly released The 80-80 Marriage, a new model for a happier, stronger marriage. Nate and his wife, Kaylee, were both successful in their careers consulting for high-powered companies around the world. Their work as mindfulness and leadership experts, however, often fell to the wayside when they came home in the evening, only to end up fighting about fairness in their marriage. They believed in a model where each partner contributed equally and fairness ruled. But in reality, they were finding that balance near impossible to achieve. From this frustration, they developed the idea of the 80-80 marriage, a new model for balancing career, family, and love. The 80-80 marriage pushes couples beyond the limited idea of fairness towards a new model grounded on radical generosity and shared success, which is all outlined in the book. Nate is a writer, philosopher, and entrepreneur. In addition to his newest release, Dr. Klemp is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Start Here, Master the Lifelong Habit of Well-Being, which was written with Eric Langsher. Dr. Klemp is a weekly columnist for Inc. Magazine and a founding partner at Mindful, one of the world's largest mindfulness media and training companies. Listen in for some great takeaways about mindfulness and a happy marriage. This is a conversation you will not want to miss. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the distinct pleasure of having Dr. Nate Klemp, founding partner of Mindful and co-author of the newly released The 80-80 Marriage. Now, you're definitely going to want to listen in here because you're going to get some tidbits for your marriage, for life, mindfulness. Welcome to the show, Nate. It's so good to be here, Larry. Looking forward to our conversation. I do as well. Thanks for joining us. So listen, I want to give our listeners an idea of who you are and how you got here today. So tell us a little bit about your path to becoming an author. Well, I suppose you could say it started when I was an undergraduate student. I got very interested in philosophy, which is a sort of strange thing to study in this modern age. But I decided I was going to learn how to live a good life and answer the big questions. So I got an undergraduate degree in philosophy and then a master's degree. 
And then it turns out if you want to become a professional philosopher, you need a PhD. So I went off and I got a PhD and I got to the end of that whole process. I was a PhD student at Princeton. It was my last year. And I realized that strangely, my life had become much worse in about every tangible way because of this intense training I was doing in philosophy. And so I thought to myself, maybe there are some different tools here that I'm missing in my 14 hours a day in the library, just pouring through all these classic texts. And so I was a professor for a time, but then I ended up leaving my academic career because I got really interested in things like mindfulness and yoga, things that I would call inner technologies for the mind, various tools and strategies for being in relationships more intentionally. And that really became my path. So I ended up writing a popular book on mindfulness called Start Here. And then also the latest book, which I think we'll talk about a little bit today, The 8080 Marriage. But that was kind of the journey. Amazing. Yeah. And I guess this all started pre-COVID. So it's even more pertinent going through the whole COVID environment, mindfulness and working those tools of the mind, I'm sure are even more pertinent today than when you even set out on this journey. No? Absolutely. Yeah. So all of this was happening 2007. So that's now 15 years ago. But what we've seen over the last couple of years is I think of it as almost like an amplification of uncertainty, anxiety, overwhelm, things like that. Things that were always there, but now we're just experiencing them in a much more acute way. Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. Mindfulness is always helpful. These tools are always helpful. But now we really need them. Otherwise, we can start to experience some some really problematic effects on our mental and emotional health. I agree. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Now, I have to ask, because I was a math major, right, before getting into mm. the financial world. And you don't need to be a math major to know that 80 plus 80 is more than 100. So I was intrigued by your book, The 80-80 Marriage. So can you explain to the audience and our listeners what 80-80 means? What's that all about? Well, so I should admit here that I was going to be an engineering major, but I couldn't quite (laughs) cut it on the math side. So perhaps that's why I wrote a book with an (laughs) illogical title, right? (laughs) We understand and we like to joke about the fact that 80 plus 80 does not equal 100. There's no such thing as a 160% whole. But the reason we came up with that concept, the 80-80 relationship or the 80-80 marriage, is that we experienced in our own life, and then we went out and interviewed about 100 people for this book, that many of us are stuck in this paradigm now of what we would call 50-50 fairness, where the idea is, hey, we want to be equals and we want to be in love. And we're going to do that by making everything perfectly fair, by keeping score, by having a mental tally going of all the wonderful things I did juxtaposed against what my wife has done. And our argument in the book is, at least in part, that that's making us miserable, that there are all sorts of reasons why, but that's just not a very skillful way of doing a relationship. And so 80-80 is really this idea of what if we approached relationship from a different mindset of something more like radical generosity? where the goal was to do something crazy, to contribute at 80%. And you would likely won't get there. It's probably impossible. 
but it's meant to break us out of that mindset of 50-50 fairness that causes so many problems. I think that's a great idea. And I, I love the concept of it because, again, this marriage relationship, it's not a sporting event, right? <laughs> like you said, it's virtually impossible if you try to keep score. Number one is, why would you keep score in a relationship? That kind of defeats the whole purpose, right? And then to try to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, I guess you're setting yourself up for failure, like you're saying, right? Well, the sports analogy, I think, is a really good one because in that 50-50 paradigm, which I think is sort of the center of gravity for modern relationships that we naturally default to, it's as though we're on two competing teams trying to win. Right. What exactly we <laughs> win by keeping score, it's unclear, right? right? right. But but it's as though we're competing against each other and protecting our turf in the form of time or contribution or whatever that might be. And the alternative, what we're calling 80-80, is you can think of it as we're now on a team together and we're trying to win together. And the goal is not my individual success, but our shared success. And I know that that can sound a little cliche maybe, but but that's a, a monumental shift for many couples. It certainly was for us. Yeah, it's everybody driving in the same direction, which is uh, what it's all about, right? And then you start having kids and bringing them into the mix, and you you want to be able to show them that you're on the same team, you're not playing against each other. So, so how is mindset key to a happy marriage? Where does that come in? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things that I think are important to say about mindset. The first is. I think of mindset as just the background set of beliefs and attitudes and expectations that you have about your relationship. So that's kind of a definition of mindset. And the thing that is really interesting about mindset, which revealed itself through all of these interviews that we did, is that in relationships, your mindset is contagious. And what that means is that whatever your mindset is as an individual that you use to approach your relationship, your partner is likely to mirror that back to you. So if your mindset is, hey, this isn't fair, I resent you for reason X, Y, and Z, you can bet that your partner is going to feel resentment and they're going to get locked in this fairness and scorekeeping and all of that, right? It's just the way the human mind works. It tends to mirror the mind of those closest to us and even those around us who are strangers. So when we shift our mindset, if we can shift our mindset to something more like 80-80 and what I'm calling radical generosity, all of a sudden that too is contagious. And that's what really gets this idea off the ground is that you don't actually need your partner to do this with you. If you just shift your mindset, you will likely find that your partner starts to shift their mindset as well. And it creates what I think of as a kind of upward spiral in relationships. Which sounds great, right? Better than the downward spiral. A thousand sure. percent for sure. So let me ask you a question. Can this be used in business? Because it sounds almost like this is almost equal to what I talk about a lot on the Midland Money Mindset about abundance mindsets. Because I feel like there are a lot of folks in business that have this scarcity mindset that they don't want to share. They don't want to collaborate because, oh, you might work with somebody I know et cetera, et cetera, instead of this abundance mindset where you realize that there's so many people out there, there's so many opportunities that everybody's not going to want to work with you and they may want to work with others. Is this similar to that type of mindset just in a more intimate setting? Absolutely. I mean, that was actually one of the really interesting things about writing this book. We were focused on intimate relationships 
And yet, once we wrote this book, I heard from, for example, one of the people who trains drivers at, at one of the nation's leading pizza chains. Right. He's like, this is what we're trying to do in our stores. We're trying to do 80-80, where the idea is, hey, let's all pitch in. Let's be generous in terms of our time and our contributions so that we can win together. We actually presented this at a major technology company where they were having a lot of trouble with teams who were in these sort of turf wars with each other. Right. It was like my resources versus your resources, my promotion versus your promotion. They were getting into this mindset of fairness. And so I think you're absolutely right that in really all relationships, whether it's with our partner at home or our friends or our family members, extended family, or at work, there's something similar going on. There's this mirroring effect of mindset, and there is a possibility of shifting to what you're calling abundance, which I think is a fantastic term, which if you can do that consistently, you'll find that it just keeps getting mirrored back to you, that there's a cyclical nature to this. Amazing. You interviewed a lot of people, and you talked about a few of them, but what came out of those conversations that showed the concept of fairness being so dangerous, other than mm. being the sporting kind of event that you mentioned earlier between one and the other. What were some other of those things that kind of alerted you, hey, this fairness thing is really dangerous here? Yeah, it was interesting because we talked to a number of different couples. And what we found is that fairness tended to show up in about four different ways. So we might call them the four faces of fairness. So Probably the main way in which this shows up is around contribution to things like household work and childcare. Right. If you're in a relationship and you have kids, you know this fight. This is the fight over who did more school drop-offs or who went to the store last or whatever that might be. Sure. So that was like the classic battle. But then it shows up in a lot of other places that you might not expect. So another classic fight is around the balance of free time spent with extended family and friends. So, you know, a lot of couples will fight around, hey, we did Father's Day with my family. We need to do Mother's Day with your family. And the balance of time needs to be exactly equal. Or we need to hang out with my friends as much as we hang out with your friends. That kind of fight. Shouldn't they be our friends, our family? <laughs> our, yeah, ideally. <laughs> but then to get to the main theme of your podcast, money is actually a really interesting area where this shows up where there are often fights around fairness in the domain of saving. I've been budgeting. I haven't been buying Starbucks so we can save for whatever it is, our down payment on a house or our trip, and you're not saving. Or there could be fights around spending. You just bought this $600 robot vacuum cleaner. Why do we need that? I've been trying to save, right? So so you get the money fights. And then the final one that I thought was really interesting, it sort of shows up once kids are in the picture, which is a battle for the balance of free time and making sure that's fair. I went to the store this morning while you went for a run for an hour. I need to have an hour this afternoon, right? That right. kind of fight over the balance of free time in the house. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I was lucky enough. Thankfully, my mother-in-law was hugely involved with my kids. So mm. whenever we needed that free time, whether it was one of us or both of us, we were lucky enough to have her step in and take over the reins so we could have that free time. So that's amazing. Thankfully, we didn't have that disagreement very often, if at all. 
Obviously, we're under some unique pressures since you started your work, and especially in recent times. What do you think some of the unique pressures on modern relationships are? Obviously, there's been this evolution on relationships over the last several decades, going decades back. When I was a kid, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, which was more common then than it is now. Now you have certain situations where you have stay-at-home dads, right, and not stay-at-home moms. So there's been a lot of modernization in the family and in relationships. Are, are there unique pressures that you saw come out of this work for the book that speak to that? One of the things we found is that our expectations around something like the division of labor and relationships have changed considerably since the 1950s. So there are obviously lots of different kinds of couples these days, but I would say that most couples go into marriage with the basic assumption that we are equals and we're going to try to make this work as equals. So the assumption is some form of equality. And yet when it comes to the actual practice of relationships, there's still a huge gender gap, right? All of the time survey research shows that women still do more when it comes to housework. Women still do more of the childcare. So there's this mismatch in some ways between what we say about marriage and gender equality and what we actually do. And what's been interesting about COVID is that during these last two years, we've seen sort of amplification there as well, in the sense that 500,000 more women than men have left the workforce. And part of the reason for that is they've left so that somebody could be around to take the kids to school or not take the kids to school right. because there are no teachers. They all have COVID, right? right. Whatever the case may be, they, you know, you need to have somebody there who's sort of tending to all those background logistical tasks in life. So I would say that is a big pressure. And what it translates into is a dynamic that's pretty classic in relationships, or many of them anyway, where you have an over-contributor and an under-contributor. And that dynamic can be really problematic because there are ways in which the over-contributor asks for help, but maybe not always in the most skillful way. And the under-contributor often has trouble hearing those requests for help and will often contribute less because of just a feeling of resentment. So I would say that is a very classic dynamic that we saw as this over-contributor, under-contributor dynamic that in some ways has been magnified by the craziness of the last couple of years with living through a pandemic. Yeah, and I don't think contribution is all created equal, right? There may be certain things, although somebody may be perceived as an under-contributor in the amount of stuff, let's say, that they're doing, right? The stuff that they are doing may take up more time or be more meaningful. So sometimes it's not a one-to-one ratio. Sometimes the one thing that I may be doing may be worth three times what something else may be doing. So I think that that 80-80, and if everybody's looking at it in the same vein that we're just trying to move in the right direction, you know, again, it just uh, reinforces that that's the more proper way of looking at things, I I think it is. Absolutely. And I think when it comes to something like our roles around the house, if you're looking at your roles with your partner, one way to think about it is through that 50-50 lens where the question is, okay, how do we make everything perfectly fair? How do we make sure that the amount of time I spend on laundry is equivalent to the amount of time (laughs) you spend cooking dinner? And that is just a recipe for resentment and conflict. I mean, just good luck with that. (laughs) And so, so I think there's a different way of framing that question, which is really how do we win together? And the reason I like that frame so much is that 
in some couples, it actually does make sense to have one partner do more of those logistical background tasks, right? Like one partner may say, hey, I'm not as good at making money. I'm not as interested in excelling in my career. So I might not work at all, or I might work half time. And we're going to just sort of break things up in a way that we can win together and not focus so much on this question of fairness. Yeah. So like in my house, in the division of labor, I do not do, and this is well known. So I'm not telling anybody that, you know, anything I can't be telling that I don't do travel arrangements. I have a brain block in my mind that I cannot do them. I've so much so that I've booked ferry rides the wrong way, (laughs) airplane tickets on the wrong day, concert tickets, uh, sport tickets, wrong day. So it's just something that over the last several years, I've given up and my wife has taken over happily because now all the travel plans are right. So in the division of labor in our household, that's something that I just am not good at and I don't have the bandwidth for. So she's taken that over and that may add more to her plate, but she's willing to do that because it's easier than correcting the mistakes that I made along the way, you know, booking wrong dates and wrong ways, et cetera. So... Well, and I think what you're pointing to there is really important, which is the fundamental shift in a relationship is from a place of unconsciousness where there's a lack of intention, a lack of consciousness to greater consciousness, greater intentionality. And if we take something like roles, what we found is that most couples fall into what we would call the winged approach to roles, to who does what around the house. So basically, They never said this because it's unconscious, but unconsciously what they essentially said was, hey, we're going to let 1950s gender norms and random historical accident determine who does what, and then we're going to fight about it all the time. And obviously, if you take a step back and you look more consciously at that setup, there's a better way to do that, which is, hey, what if we sat down together and had the conversation you just described where we talked about what are we good at? What do we like to do? How do we win together? How do we want to set this up in a way that really makes sense for us? All of a sudden, you're bringing intentionality and consciousness into this structure, and you start to find that a lot of the conflict dissipates because you're now much more intentional about how this is set up. Yeah, I mean, you would never want to enter a career that you didn't like and you're miserable doing (laughs) or your employer was telling you to do things that you didn't get energy from. So ideally, if you're working, you want to get energy from whatever your role is, whatever you're doing. And the same thing there. It shouldn't be a job per se, but if you could do the things that give you energy, it's just going to make you a better husband, better father, better, better relationship overall, I think, which is, you know, exactly what you're, you know, what you're talking about. We talked a lot about mindfulness and the importance of it so that we can mirror that mindfulness, et cetera, so that we can have a better relationship. And you talk about the mindset of resentment being so dangerous to relationships, right? What tips can you offer to those who want to shift their mindset related to their relationship and kind of stay away from and navigate away from that resentment? I know we've talked about some of those, but are there any key things, key takeaways that we should be aware of? Yeah. I mean, one thing is just to go back to that idea of 80-80, the shift away from fairness, And you can make that tangible by doing little things each day. So one might be a small act of contribution, nothing huge, but just getting your spouse a cup of coffee or doing a job that's theirs because they don't have time, small things like that. Another would be appreciation. It's amazing the power of appreciation and how counter habitual that is for many of us, that most of us 
by default, spend our days looking at all the things our partner's doing wrong. And this is just the way the brain is wired. You know, neuroscientists call this the negativity bias of the brain. So it's not like you're doing anything wrong when you're doing this. But appreciation is essentially flipping those glasses and noticing what is my partner doing right? How can I appreciate them for it? And then when resentment does arise, and it inevitably will, one of the things that I think is really powerful is having the toolkit where you can reveal that frustration or fear or sadness, whatever it might be, in a way that doesn't create conflict, but actually brings you closer together. So you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is this idea of, we call it reveal and request. So instead of saying something like, this isn't fair, I did dishes three times, you haven't helped me out at all, blah, 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 right? We all know where that conversation goes. <laughs> there could be an alternative way of revealing that where it's more, hey, I notice I've been doing the dishes a lot and I'm feeling some irritation around that. My request is, can we have a conversation about how we divide this up so it doesn't feel like I've stopped feeling all this irritation? There's a way in which you can shift how you have those conversations so that resentment and miscommunication and hurt feelings are actually a catalyst for growth together instead of something that pulls you apart. Right. And it sounds like the small acts of contribution and recognizing it are almost like planting seeds for later on just to, mm -hmm. to alleviate some of that concern and some of the conflict that might arise. Because if all you're doing is recognizing the conflict rather than doing those small acts of contribution, it's a much different story than if you're doing those small acts all along and then something arises. It's almost like there, it's a little bit of a cushion mm. when you get to that point, I guess. Yeah. You know, one of the metaphors that's used a lot in this work, so John Gottman He's a fairly famous researcher on marriage. He uses the analogy of a bank account. And since this is a podcast about money, this might be appropriate. But the basic idea is that every time you have a positive interaction, which could be a contribution or an appreciation, it's like you're depositing funds sure. into account. And every time you have a negative interaction, every, every time you criticize your spouse or you nag them or you insult them, you know, whatever that might be, it's like you're pulling all the funds out of that account. And so what we want to be thinking about in relationship is how do we build that account balance as high as possible? And really the way we do that is by maximizing the number of those positive interactions we have. And Gottman actually has this great ratio. He calls it the five to one ratio. What he finds is that thriving couples will have five of those positive interactions for every one negative interaction. And the couples who are on the verge of divorce start to get down below a one-to-one -one ratio where all of a sudden now they have five negative interactions for one positive interaction. And so the numbers are weird and it's weird to think of your marriage as a ratio. Right. And yet the research tells us that if we want our relationship to thrive, we do need to have something like that five-to-one ratio going on. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. And I, I agree. And you just got to find out what works best for you in terms of building up the bank account. So when those events happen, you're not depleting at all. You don't want to be overdrawn. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you speak of generosity as an umbrella. Can you share more about this mindset with our listeners? Yeah, we think of generosity as just a number of different things that that one could do in the context of marriage. And I think that one way just to ground the concept of generosity is noticing that generosity is by definition, not fairness, 
right? So fairness is about doing the exact same amount and making sure that balance remains equal. Generosity, on the other hand, is by definition about doing more than your fair share. Almost with no expectation of anything in return, with, yeah, really. Basically right? with no expectation of return. And many couples start off in a place of generosity. If you think back to the dating years and coming up with lavish plans and buying flowers and all these different things you might have done, writing love letters, things like that, you weren't necessarily expecting a return on your investment when you did those things. But once life gets complicated and you have kids and logistics and all these things, right, that kind of falls out of the equation. So the basic idea is, can we bring generosity back into the way in which we operate our relationship together? And the idea of that umbrella concept is really just to say that generosity could be about something like contribution. That's like a classic case of generosity. But it could be about appreciation, as we were just talking about. It could be about revealing. It could be about thinking about some really interesting questions for your spouse so you don't go to the end of the day and start talking about, you know, random things that happened at work, but you're, you're talking about like, how do we feel about our life together? What are our dreams together? Things like that. It could be about even just carving out space for each other, having a date night or a weekend away, things like that, where you're really just thinking about how can I align my life so that my actions result in a gift for the two of us that brings us closer and, and brings us connection. Yeah, and I would imagine it's probably pretty important to start that process and get on that path before the kids arrive, right? Because if you're a family that's going to want to or you're striving to have children, it seems to me, from my experience, that kind of changes the game, puts more pressures, more tensions perhaps on the relationship because you have more responsibilities now, more things going on. So I would imagine it's even that much more important to start laying the groundwork for that relationship well before, if you're going to go in that direction, to have a family comes to fruition. That's absolutely right. And one of the things we found is that couples who didn't have kids, and this was certainly true of us, they can actually go quite a, a long distance or a long way in that mindset of fairness and with this sort of division of lives where it's like me over here and you over there, and we try to just keep things separate and achieve individual success. And there's a way in which that can work when you don't have kids. But when you bring kids into the picture, all of a sudden there is this shared project that you both have to figure out how you're going to contribute to that's just so much bigger than anything that might have right. been there before. And so I think you're absolutely right. If you can start cultivating some of these habits in advance of that, it makes the transition so much easier. Now, I will say, full disclosure, my wife and I were not that smart and we did not transition our mindset and our habits in that way. So having a kid for us was very destabilizing. And it actually got us very close to the point of divorce at certain times. And, and really, that was what inspired us to do these interviews and write this book, is that we just felt like if we could do this earlier and just start thinking about some of this in advance, it would make everything so much easier when kids do arrive. Yeah, either that or you could create a manual on what and how to raise the kids, and that would be helpful too. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't give you that book anywhere. There are a lot of great books out oh there on that. Oh boy, that is not my yeah. expertise. Yeah, there's books that address it. I don't know that there's really a good manual for that. Yeah. Everything's different. You need a lot of different versions of that book to really make it work for you. Totally. I just want to shift gears for a minute. So you talk about and you share how in committed relationships, sex, or more specifically the lack thereof nowadays, is more of about a lack of headspace 
and not a lack of time. What mm-hmm. advice or what guidance can you offer for those that are in that situation? Yeah. So that was really interesting. As we were talking to couples, we heard a pretty common story where we would hear about the couple at the end of the day sitting on opposite sides of the couch or opposite sides of the bed with their tablets or their smartphones, scanning Instagram, reading the news, watching TV shows, but not having enough time for intimacy. And this is a really interesting thing. And it's a very common phenomenon. There's actually been a lot of research that shows every single age demographic is now having considerably less sex than they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. In fact, researchers are calling this the sexual recession. (laughs) So there is this sort of macro phenomenon happening. And I think in some ways, what's at the root of it is that it's not so much that we don't have time. It's that we are so distracted and so drawn to our devices and to our social media and news and all these different things, all these different forms of stimulation that we don't have the space in our minds to connect. And there's been a lot of research on intimacy. And what it's shown is that space is really like one of the key ingredients. You know, if you think about when you were young and you were in college or, you know, you were first married, the one thing you had in abundance was space. You could be crazy and you had time to let things happen spontaneously and things like that. And for a lot of couples now, that space is gone, both in terms of time, but also in our own minds. So the more we can create space away from all these distractions, away from the chaos of logistics, often that's like the best thing we can do for intimacy in a relationship. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is social media is not that social. (laughs) Well, it's probably not very social for you and your spouse unless you like sit there on Instagram together, you know, and talk about the posts they come up. Right, right, right. (laughs) Which I don't think most people do. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. That's interesting. And again, I think it comes down to what we've discussed, which is being mindful and being mindful of where you're at, where each other are in order to make sure that I, I agree. I don't think it's a lack of time. It's just being bombarded by a million things in that same time frame that you have. So hopefully people will take that away and create the headspace for it now going forward. Listen, it's, we've had a good time. What are the next big steps for you, Nate? What's coming up down the pike for you? Well, I continue to work on these topics around relationships and the 8080 marriage. I will soon likely be starting a new book project which is really exciting. That'll probably be more on the mindfulness side of things. Too early to really tell exactly what that's going to emerge into or evolve into, but that's happening. So I would say that's what's going on for me. And then trying to just survive in this in this kind of crazy time and be a good father and a good spouse and all those different things. There you go. Well, you have a good book to count on and rely on to go back and reacquaint yourself with, right? Absolutely. So listen, we've had a good time, Nate, and we end every show by asking each one of our guests the same question, which is around mindset and joy. What did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? For me... I left my house sort of mid-morning. I needed to write an article. And instead of sitting at my desk, I went on a walk and dictated the article into my phone. And that took about half of the walk. And then on the other half of the walk on the way back, I just enjoyed this beautiful sunny day 
and really savored this experience of having 20 minutes or so where I had literally nothing to do. And so I try to insert moments like that into my day, moments of mindfulness, moments of movement where I'm outside in nature, and and even to combine them with work itself. So I'm a writer and I've learned that some of my best writing actually happens while I'm walking, that I can dictate an article or a book chapter. And obviously I have to come back and do a lot of editing and things like that. The dictation isn't perfect, but it's often prose that's fresher and more interesting and more alive than if I was just sitting in front of my computer, you know, typing away at the keyboard. So that brings me life, brings me joy, brings me creative fire, I would say. I love that. I've never done that before. And you answered my one question was going to be, how much editing do you have to do after you come (laughs) back? Because I almost feel like if I were to do that, that the editing would take as much time as like sitting down and writing it. But I guess you wouldn't have gotten the walk in, which is excellent, too. But I might have to give that a try. Well, and sometimes I'll actually rewrite the whole thing. But (laughs) having written it once in nature, when I do it the second time around, it's just so much better, better than if I had just been sitting there in front of my computer. Better perspective that you're starting out with, probably, for sure. So, well, listen, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show, Nate. And we'll have all this information in the show notes. But what is the best way if people want to find you or connect with you and learn more about the 8080 marriage? Best way to find us is our website, 8080marriage.com. And there we have some free guides on date night and we do a free newsletter. That's actually what I was writing, (laughs) our weekly newsletter. So that goes out once a week with tips and different resources on marriage and relationships. And then we're also on Instagram, 8080marriage. We do a lot of different challenges and tips and insights there as well. Awesome. We'll encourage everybody to check it out. We'll have that all in the show notes. Thanks again for being a guest and make it a great day. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Dr. Nate Klemp for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Nate has taken his passion for mindfulness and marriage and created a whole new model. Being able to balance career, family, and love is something many strive for, and Dr. Klemp has found the way and wants to share it with all those that will listen or want to learn. Be sure to check out his most recent book, The 8080 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Marriage. Dr. Klemp and the 8080 Marriage can be found across all social media platforms. All the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, 
financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.